This is Africa Digest. Both your latest news every good afternoon. I am Onilin Sinsi. Former Chad President Hassan Habre has banned the special African chamber created in 2013 by Senegal and the African Union been sentenced to life in prison. He was this Monday found guilty of crimes against humanity and for ordering the killings and torture of thousands of political opponents during his eight-year rule, which began in 1982. The verdict closes a 16-year battle by victims and rights campaigners to bring the former strongman to justice in Senegal, where he fled after being toppled in a 1990 coup in the Central African nation. Suspected Rashabad militants have shot and killed three village elders in Kenya's coastal region. This is reported to be on suspicions of helping security agencies fight the insurgents. The suspects are said to think these elders have information about them, which they are sharing with police and other security agencies, and that is why they are targeting them. Al-Shabaab has said in the past its frequent attacks in Kenya are in retaliation for Kenya sending its troops into Somalia in 2011. They are now part of an African Union peacekeeping force. A group which claims to represent Zimbabwean Debelles living in South Africa want the special dispensation of temporary work permits for Zimbabweans living in South Africa to be extended past the deadline of 2017. The rejected citizens of Zimbabwe had written to Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba asking that the department create temporary Zimbabwean identity documents for members of the Ndebele ethnic group living in South Africa, saying the group has long been persecuted by the Shona majority government in that country. Victim Tetra of the RCOZ says the African Union needs to launch an investigation into these claims. We want our own temporary IDs which are designed, you know, for us, Ndebeles. Why lead to this situation of a restriction between Ndebeleland and the, the government of Zimbabwe, which is led by the Shona majority, uh, EOAU and African Union? to take a look at Gabon while they are investigating it because what defenseless, you know, the government owned by President Gabe owns everything. So we don't have a voice. 
South Africa's Department of Arts and Culture says the African continent has to work together in order to grow and achieve peace and unity. Speaking at a TNA media briefing on Monday, Ntetwa emphasized that more needs to be done to ensure that the African continent is appreciated for what it is by the world. AU did what it was supposed to do. That is the decolonization of our continent. Most of the countries today in the continent are free. But we today have moved to AU, which developed a program, AU Agenda 2063, which is about prosperity of the continent. And ours was to make a contribution, firstly as South Africans, to connect properly with our continent. Meanwhile, Nigerian professor and author Kole Omotoso, who was also in attendance, says African leaders should focus on the strength of the continent to develop. The people who hold the infrastructure that reaches out to Africans and Africa, I think what we need is a very uh, serious commitment of infrastructure by our governments. I think for the first time, we really need to ask our governments to speak to us in our languages. Channel African News, I'm It's 17.06 Central African Time. Thank you very much, Onele, for all that update. Remember that you still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I am Spomile Lezondi. Onele, since they had your news, you will still hear from Wisani Matebula, who will have your economic news, and Musibudi Makura, who will have your sports. Your top stories, a former Chad president, Hissan Habra, sentenced to life in prison. UN officials face to dissuade Kenya from closing the Dadaab refugee camp, Egypt has em- embarked on an initiative to show how art can be used as a tool to shape community awareness of HIV and AIDS. In economics, air passengers demand in April rose at its lowest rate since January 2015. Rather. And in sports, the IWAF extends the suspension of three former leading Kenyan athletics officials by six months. Now, let's go to that top story that we have. Chad's ex-ruler, Hissan Habre, has been convicted of war crimes against humanity and sentenced to life in prison at his war crimes trial in Senegal. The judge also convicted him of rape, sexual slavery, and ordering killings. It was the first time an African Union-backed court has tried a former ruler for human rights abuses. The prosecutor at the court in Senegal's capital, Dakar, requested a life sentence for Habre, who refused to recognize its legitimacy. The ex-president denied accusations that he ordered the killing of 40,000 people during his rule from 1982 to 1990. Andrew Strunel, media director for Human Rights Watch on the line from Dakar in Senegal. Well, honestly, it was one of the most spectacular moments of my life. I was just so honored to be in that courtroom and see these victims who have been, you know, struggling to get to this day for 26, 27 years, some even longer, to see the joy on their faces, to see the elation, to hear the shouts and the screams and the whoops, you know, it's complete, an overwhelming wave of joy.
Now, tell us about some of the trials and tribulations the victims had to go through to get to this point, finally. Well, of course, most serious was the offences themselves that uh, occurred under the Habre regime. You know, people were raped, they were tortured, they were locked up for spurious reasons, some thrown into prisons and kept into in cells with dead bodies for days on end. Uh, the tortures were unimaginable. But you know, since then, since Habre left power, there have been legal difficulties, legal struggles, trying to find you know a bit of finance to help them to get legal assistance and to get just travel assistance and to finding a way to set up a court. You know, every step, every step of the way was a drama and a, and a struggle, and they stuck with it. Now, tell us, does this here that it says that the the judge also convicted Hussein Habri of rape, sexual slavery, and ordering killings. Now, why do you think the judge decided to tag on and convict Habri of these seemingly extra charges? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, the the cases of sexual slavery and rape were well-founded, and the victims who became witnesses in the courtroom gave convincing argument. The judge said very specifically that he was the presiding judge, Mr. Kam, had uh, said he was specifically very convinced by the woman who said that she herself had been raped by Habre himself. I mean, this is the first time, so far as we know, that a head of state has been convicted of rape himself, that he has actually personally carried out the rape. So the judge said her testimony was convincing, and that's why we ended up with this excellent victory. Now, can Hisan Habre appeal this life sentence? Well, I believe there's a small window for appeal. I don't know what Habre himself would, would be minded to do, of course. He, he has never recognized the court, although the rest of the world has recognized it. But, yes, no. there's a small window for an appeal, but I don't know if they will take it. I think it's just, it's really like only 10 days or maybe two weeks when they have to, to make that appeal. And I don't know what how they're minded. Now, talking about um, Habre having asserted throughout the trial that he did not recognize the authority of the court and, you know, he refused to cooperate and he was frequently disrupting the proceedings, wouldn't this have affected the outcome of the verdict adversely? Well, it often happens in these atrocity trials where you know, a head of state or very uh, high-level officials who are on trial refuse to recognize the authority. I mean, you know, their argument is probably that they never recognize anybody's authority. Why should they recognize this court or anybody else's? It's kind of a, a strategy, I guess, on their part. But um, it, when everyone else is recognizing the proceedings, it's, it's not really a very successful or winning strategy, as we've seen. Now, let's go back to the victims. Will the victims receive any reparations? Okay, so this is a separate it's a separate process. There's a separate event that will take place either in June or July where the reparations issue will be discussed. It's quite complicated because there are some 4,000 or more civil parties to the case that will be involved and they need to figure out the amount and also sort of the, the system for how things will be collected and distributed. So that's a separate, a separate event that will happen. The chambers will take up, I believe, in a few weeks. What will happen to the extraordinary chambers after this whole thing is complete, the hybrid trial? Well, these extraordinary chambers were uh, part of the Senegalese legal system created especially for this case, and they basically will wrap up their business you know, after these last bits and pieces, compensation and a possible appeal. Or, you know, that, that, that's pretty much it for, for this court. 
Andrew Strulane, he is the media director for Human Rights Watch, speaking to Jose Khotengake, talking to her from Brussels in Belgium. Let's go to Kenya now. Fourteen officials of the United Nations Security Council have returned to New York after failing to persuade the Kenyan government to reverse its decision of closing Dadaab refugee camp in the northeastern parts of the country. For the past 20 years, Dadaab, the world's largest refugee camp, has been home to more than half a million Somali refugees. James Shimanyola reports. The Kenyan government has announced that it will not change its decision to close Dadaab, the world's largest refugee camp, hosting more than half a million Somalis. The announcement was underscored by the head of Parliamentary Committee on Security, Asmani Kamama. Majority of our members and majority of parliamentarians support the government position to close all the refugee camps. And uh, of course, as you know, as government, there comes a time when hard decisions must be made. As Kenyan authorities stuck to their decision of closing the Dab refugee camp, though no official date has been set for the closure, a diplomatic push by the United Nations to persuade the Kenyan government to change its decision of closing the Dab refugee camp failed after the Nairobi authorities maintained that the camp must be closed because it is used by Somalia's Al-Shabaab militants to carry out periodic attacks in the country. The camp, located in the northeastern part of the country, has been home for more than half a million Somali refugees for more than 20 years. Now 14 officials from the United Nations Security Council have returned to New York from Kenya after their push to Kenyan authorities to reverse their decision on the closure of the double camp was turned down. Speaking in Nairobi before leaving for the United Nations headquarters in New York, Abdul Latif Abawulata, permanent representative of the North African nation of Egypt and the current president of the United Nations Security Council tastily stressed the importance of the Kenyan government stopping the closure of the Dadaabu camp and the subsequent repatriation of Somali refugees. The repatriation process should be halted till negotiations are done and peace prevails in Somalia. We cannot allow or, or ask or give consent of going back to Somalia. Also expressing his views on the closure of the Dadaab refugee camp is the British ambassador to the United Nations, Matthew Rycroft. There is no lack of will, it's just a very long way to go. If you take a long view, you see how far Somalia has come, but clearly there is much more that needs to be done, and we are committed to being there to help the people and leaders of Somalia. There are challenges in terms of the politics, in terms of the security situation and the threat from al-Shabaab, and there are constant humanitarian and development challenges. The closure of the Dab refugee camp has prompted members of parliament from northeastern Kenya, where it is located, to make varying comments. Fatuma Ibrahim, member of parliament for Wajir County, is one of them. It's violation of the rights of uh, asylum seekers, people who have fled from uh, persecution, who have fled from wars and conflict, forced to go back. There are different security threats in Somalia. Terrorist government not providing sufficient security to returnees who want to go back to Somalia who might be under threat. So I find the government of Kenya is not fair to the refugees who have been hosted in Kenya. 
Somali refugees in Dadaab too have made their views known regarding the closure of the Dadaab camp. Here are voices of two of them. We are ready to help the government to identify people that are suspected to be colluding with Somalia's Al-Shabaab members that have sinister motives. Another refugee in Dadaab camp had this to say. We are not ready to go to Somalia. How can we go to a country where we have not lived for many years? Somalia is not a safe country anymore. I say again, we are not going back there. Those were two voices of Somali refugees in Dadaab refugee camp in northeastern Kenya, the largest refugee home in the world. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is 1718 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pamela Lezonde with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One over there. It's Channel Africa One. Now, breaking the silence around sexual exploitation of children remains critical in efforts to ensure the protection of children. This is according to global non-profit organization and child prostitution, child pornography and trafficking of children for sexual purposes. ECPAT, a study conducted by the organization, has revealed that children are increasingly at risk of commercial sexual exploitation in travels and tourism around the world. As South Africa marks Child Protection Week, Jane Rabotata spoke to the organization's Africa Coordinator for Africa, Catherine Mbangwe, who explains that themselves should be empowered to take a stand against the scourge that is children themselves. That's right. It's the sixth, obviously, in the series of international conferences on community psychology. I'm very pleased to say that it's the first time that it's come to Africa. And it's come at a pretty important time, given the particular conversations that are happening both in academic spaces, but certainly in public spaces as well, about related to issues of liberation and community, you know, different enactments and representations of community. And for those people who are in the business of knowledge making, 
certainly the question of knowledges, which knowledges are privileged, who makes knowledges, and which knowledges we use to train and teach our psychology students. So it's really come at an opportune time, and I'm pleased to add that we have had representation from over 25 countries at this conference. Numerous students and community activists have also had a opportunity to participate in the meeting. Let's focus attention, Doctor, on this year's theme, Global Dialogues on Critical Knowledges, Liberation and Community. How significant is it? I believe that it's highly significant. It is a conversation that's happening not just in the national context, but I believe very much at the global level. You would, of course, know from recent discourses in public spaces, in the media and social media, Certainly, in terms of representation of the students, representation from the students about what is going on in this country, that we have to critically interrogate the idea of community, as I was saying earlier, who or what is community. And knowledge is simply because knowledge represent the pinnacle of what we are trained to do, how we do it, how we impart knowledge to others. But I keep saying that it's important and it's opportune because it's happening at a time when the importance of censoring Africa, but also other spaces in the global south. Let me talk about Africa, though. The importance of centering Africa in dialogues about knowledges, about liberation, when so many remain dispossessed, marginalized and silenced by structural violence and, of course, other oppressive influences as well. Still in South Africa, more than 21 years into democracy, do you think that community psychology, like other social and public health sciences, is slowly beginning to receive attention? Interestingly, community psychology and critical forms of community psychology were fairly ascendant in the period before 1994, where black psychologists in particular were questioning and interrogating psychology, even psychology's complicity with apartheid violence and pushing for transformation within the discipline in ways that really topples this idea that as a discipline we have to be neutral in what we do, how we think, and how we teach. But I would add that in more recent years, those same forms of critical psychology have again been renewed and refreshed by the social and public discourses that we see and hear around us in terms of what the troubles are. The social justice struggles are for this country, as you say, 21 years into democracy. Generally, how has community psychology contributed to some of the biggest problems facing humanity today? We can talk about things such as extreme poverty, disease outbreaks, and the wars and its damages to humanity. I'd like to believe that it has raised the profile of social and public health problems within its disciplinary tradition. In other words, pointing to the notion that issues related to the lack of social justice are as much the concern of psychologists, community psychologists, as well as other kinds of psychologists as it might be um, for other people who very explicitly work in the area of social justice. As I was saying earlier, this is not a discipline that has the privilege to maintain any form of neutrality whatsoever. And critical forms of community psychology then have accentuated this idea that we have to get our hands dirty, that we have to do activism-related work, that what we write, what we teach, what we do has to be very much embedded in ideas about liberation and social justice.
So in that sense, community psychology, I add critical forms of community psychology have made important contributions. I do believe that there's scope for so much more to be done within this discipline, and we are hoping that this grows, that the conversations that have emerged at this conference continue to be animated within the discipline, but also outside of the discipline, and certainly an opportunity to talk about it with yourself is one way in which we can begin to do that. And that's Catherine Mbeg, coordinator for Africa for the non-profit organization and child prostitution, child pornography and trafficking of children for sexual purposes, talking to Jane Rabotata there. As robust discussions about community psychology have taken center stage as the sixth international conference on community psychology underway in South Africa's coastal city of Durban, the four-day event, which concludes today, has made its debut in Africa after its success in Latin America and Europe. The meeting has brought together more than 500 academics, practitioners, students, activists, policymakers, and community leaders from around the world. It's hosted by the University of South Africa, the South African Medical Research Council and the Psychological Society of South Africa. More from Dr. Shanaz Sufla, a senior scientist at MRC. It's actually a program which is meant to educate people about the importance of, of plastic waste, recycling in general. The intention is to increase separation at source and also allow more efficient sorting and, and processing of um, uh, recycled plastics. And I'd imagine that, of course, this is not necessarily the first of its kind. How different would this one be from the rest? We've got a vision which is, it says, Zero Waste to Landfill by 2030, which is essentially driven by Plastic SA. These are, this is a body which we have partnered with. This one is more like educational in nature. We, we're bringing forth the importance of recycling and also opportunities that people could then realize in, in terms of recycling. Mr. Masilela, what sort of contribution would you say the recycling industry overall makes to, with regards to um, whether it's economic growth of the country or in terms of job creation? I think the latest states, the 2015 states, indicate that the, the informal employment has, has grown by 3% to an estimated figure of uh, 48,000. Uh, we're looking that those are like collectives. But generally, this is like employment-intensive um, kind of a, a, a program. And how can we really get um, young people involved in such programs? Um, you know, we often hear young people complaining that even though they want to be involved in a number of initiatives, on even in terms of entrepreneurship, there's usually red tape. Um, how can they get involved in such a, a project? I think I think maybe for for a start, I think uh, perhaps we can contact the department. Um, but over and above, I think we've got um, other programs, like for instance, on the the co-op side of things, wherein they could perhaps uh, form some co-ops. Um, we've got the Department of Small Business, which can also assist on the incentives. I think as part of the the, the broader ICAP process, we've also partnered with IDC, NEF. I think. Um, uh, in so far as finance is concerned, I think um, this program could easily um, be financed as well. And of course, this initiative is also in line with um, you know a broader vision of the Department of Environmental Affairs um, in its yeah. zero waste to landfill by 2030. How is that specific initiative doing? And exactly what motivated the DTI department to then obviously get involved in that? 
Uh, I think you're quite correct, because I think as a, as a collective across the government departments, I think DI is also looking at clean environment, right? And and Department of Trade and Industry, what we're looking at is out of the, the waste itself, what opportunities, employment opportunities could also be created and, when, and products, uh, to be precise, that could also be made out of recycled uh, input material. Maybe, maybe one can also uh, maybe uh, state fair and say, like for instance, we've got a, a different uh, plastic. It's uh, it's separated into two. We have got your 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 demo plastics and you have got your demo cells. Like for instance, under PET, the polyethylene terephthalate. When you recycle, you could either recycle that bottle, a bottle to bottle, or you can either recycle that bottle into a fiber. You could, uh, using PET again, make your, your, your wheelie bin, the dustbin, basically. All right, that story is by Komotumopulani, and she was talking to Togozani Masilela, and they were talking about the recycling industry contributing significantly to the South African economy as the country's Department of Trade and Industry has initiated a program to ensure that more plastic is recycled in order to contribute in creating jobs and help achieve a greener economy. The program was launched earlier this month and it's called the Landfill Plastic Diversion Program and it's in line with the Department of Environmental Affairs' Zero Waste to Landfill by 2030 initiative. It's time for news headlines with Onel Nzinti. Former Chet President Hissène Habré has, by the Special African Chamber, been sentenced to life in prison. An Egyptian court has convicted and sentenced 36 Islamists, including a top leader of the outlawed Muslim Brotherhood, to life imprisonment. And a group which claims to represent Zimbabwean Debelles living in South Africa want the special dispensation of temporary work permits for Zimbabweans living in the country to be extended past the deadline of 2017. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.31 Central African time right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Find us on info at channelafrica.co.za on email. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 over there. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Now, Egypt has embarked on an initiative to show how art can be used as an effective tool to shape community awareness of HIV-AIDS and fight the stigma related to the disease. Dubbed the MAHD Film Lab, the project has gained support from the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, UN-AIDS, and the National AIDS Program. For more insights on this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Ahmed Khamis, UN-AIDS Egypt's country manager. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Dr. Khamis. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Now, uh, perhaps maybe if you can start by telling us how prevalent is um, HIV and AIDS in Egypt? Well, Egypt is still a country with low prevalence of HIV. However, we do have a concentrated epidemic uh, among uh, key populations, mainly um, the biggest two key populations with an epidemic are people who inject drugs and men who have sex with men. Um, although we do have a low prevalence epidemic, however, it's a growing epidemic. And that's why it's quite important to spread awareness, uh, as you've mentioned, and also address the key hindrance to the uh, response to HIV, which is stigma and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps maybe if you can also, before we get to um, the initiative by the MAHD Film Lab, if you can give us a brief background of what the MAHD Film Lab actually is. Okay, well, um, the MAHD, we call it Mahd, which in Arabic uh, refers to, um, I mean, it does have a meaning in Arabic, and it, it refers to um, a place where uh, new projects are fostered and are starting. And um, the aim of the, the this pro- specific project was to create a platform for young screenwriters uh, to develop their scripts uh from uh, scratch, from just an idea, and make sure that these scripts would address um, somehow the issue of HIV. The aim was not to uh, spread awareness through a lecture-style film or feature film, but to um, integrate HIV within the the, the movie, either the short movie, the short feature film, or the long one, um, aiming to destigmatize HIV. Uh, If viewers would see it on the screen as a normal thing that we can uh, deal with, then we uh, hope that through art we can raise their awareness on uh, the fact that HIV is there um, and the fact that we should not stigmatize uh, HIV and discriminate upon uh, people living with HIV. Uh, The project started uh, with um, a few screenwriters. It actually had um, quite a big um, audience in the beginning we had um, more than 75 applicants screenwriters to uh, be on the project however we selected only 15 uh, we managed to push uh, these 15 young screenwriters to develop their um, uh, stories and now we actually have good interest from producers and financiers um, and production companies to support these uh, these projects so that's the the project in a nutshell Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, um, how much of an interest are you getting for from filmmakers? Well, actually, we were um, pleasantly surprised when we were having our pitching event uh, last Thursday. We had some celebrities there. We had some um, celebrity directors and producers there. They were very much interested, not just by the topic, but but also by the methodology that was used, which is quite different uh, because usually uh, the Currently now, the interest is not just um, in the products, but in the development of the product. And that was our focus, the process of which how we supported these um, uh, scripts to be developed. We managed to mobilize key actors in the response to HIV, key populations, representatives, and representatives of people living with HIV to meet with the screenwriters to tell them the real-life stories. So we make sure that the stories are coming from um, the field they are they are reflecting the realities um, that we are living and are are not just uh, ideas of the screenwriters of what is happening. So I believe this um, natural sense of things and how they are um, being implemented on the ground and how they are running on the ground. This added uh, a lot to the 
quality of the uh, scripts. And when we invited the screenwriter, the, the production companies and the directors, we had very good traction, actually. And we were pleasantly surprised. And we hope and we look forward to seeing the progress of these projects uh, to reach the screen. Mm. Ahmed, you keep on saying you are pleasantly surprised. Why was it surprising? Uh, well, we still have a high level of stigma in Egypt. Um, and um, usually arts, um, I mean, kind of, pro- of projects are quite new. Uh, also the timing, there are other competing priorities for some of the producers and the directors with other events have taking place. So we were happy to see that um, the idea managed to get that uh, much traction and to see also that um, the young screenwriters, when they pitched their uh, product, um, they managed to get the interest of some of the producers and the directors to actually support their um, project. Mm. So, um, yeah, in, in that sense, also in a, in a short duration of time, we managed to have these successful products. Mm. Um, with the stigma that you are telling us about, then do conversations about HIV and AIDS happen openly in, in Egypt? The conversation, of course, is, is, um, is there. Uh, however, still people have a lot of misconceptions about HIV and how it's transmitted. Um, there are a lot of, um, I mean, the discrimination stigma is stemming also from the fact that people relate HIV transmission to behaviors that they frown upon or the community frowns upon. Um, so we can still see uh, on the street and in public that talking about HIV and AIDS would still bring some discomfort to some people. Um, however, I believe we have we have cut some distance as well. I mean, we we now have a lot of um, TV programs and many shows that uh, interview people, um, either activists in the field or people living with HIV, and they can talk about their experience uh, freely. And there is a lot of sympathy being mobilized also towards uh, helping people living with HIV. So a lot of progress has been made, but there is still a long way to go. Uh, media has not played a positive role in the past. 20 years ago, we had movies that uh, portrayed HIV as a crime. They, put, they also made a close link between HIV and a lot of behaviors that the community frowned upon. And that is why we, we are trying to correct that now and to bring back movies that would correct these misconceptions and address the issue in a more positive way. Mm. Um, and in terms of authorities and the laws and the policies that are created, are they on your side as um, as HIV and AIDS workers? Yes, I mean, we do have a national AIDS program following the Ministry of Health that's quite uh, open to um, the issue and is quite helpful and supportive. Uh, the, the laws and the policies, I mean, there is no discriminatory laws in place. Uh, all people should get access to all services. Uh, however, we still have some challenges um, in terms of practices implementing these regulations and laws. We are witnessing a huge problem when, when it comes to uh, healthcare providers, for example. Um, healthcare providers still stigmatize against people um, living with HIV, and some, and in many instances, they refuse to provide services. So this is quite a challenge, a big challenge for Egypt still. Um, although there is a, um, a, a clear regulation that all people, regardless of whatever they have, they should have access to their constitutional rights, they should have access to quality health services. However, how this is being enforced is something that we're still working with the Ministry of Health to ensure as well. All right. Thank you very much and good luck with the project. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. That is Dr. Ahmed Khamis, who is the country manager for the Joint United Nations program on HIV AIDS, UN AIDS in Egypt.
If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Rhino Connect says the public needs to be adequately informed about the legalization of the domestic trade in rhino horn in a united effort to protect the animals. Karen Fenter, spokesperson for the United for the organization Rhino Connect, says very few people actually understand the process behind legally trading in a rhino horn on the domestic front. She says her organization is not taking sides in terms of being pro or anti domestic trade, but no one can make an informed decision without the necessary information. Very few people understand the process behind legally trading in rhino horn on the domestic front. And um, from our side, we are not taking sides in terms of being proactive or anti-domestic trade. But we cannot make informed decisions without necessary information. For example, the public seems not to realize that how strict the process is of selling a rhino horn on local soil. It is a very tight process that takes place and it's very above board. The reason private rhino owners are trying to sell the rhino horn is for them in some way to be able to support the protection of their rhinos because at this stage it's just a loss for them to have rhinos because of all the protective measures that needs to be in place. The other thing is that a lot of people seem to be confused about is that they think once the horn has been removed that it cannot grow back where in fact actually a rhino can grow back its horn about eight times in its lifetime. So that's just some of the things that we want the public to be aware about. And then in the meanwhile, we want to all tell the public about this wonderful opportunity that they can become involved in helping and supporting private rhino owners by coming um, to camp on some of the lodges or the campsites that these private rhino owners own. And that in turn brings a financial contribution towards the farm, which in turn helps the private rhino owner maybe to appoint another APU, which is an anti-poaching unit. They need 24-hour surveillance on their rhinos to help prevent poaching. So the public can become involved by either being a local volunteer or they can just come and camp. Maybe they have a loss of photography or for just walking in the bush or just coming to camp with their families. Even that, just that financial contribution makes a huge impact, as well as the physical presence makes a significant difference in successful preventative rhino conservation. That is what Rhino Connect is all about, because we want to help prevent losses. You know, We want to be proactive in protecting the rhinos. Now, Karin, what is it that the... People should understand more specifically when it comes to the processes behind legally trading in rhino horn on the domestic front. They need to understand that it's a very strict process. And although that the rhino owners, the reason why they are trying to sell it is because they need to make up money in some way to help protect their rhinos. So they're not selling it to make money. It's not a, a money horse um, that you're just going to benefit from. The losses that they are experiencing just to keep rhinos on their farm is severe. And this is just a way for them 
to make up money. So the thing is, there's so many ways that they are trying to protect rhinos and stop poaching. And the solutions, there's different solutions. One is by supplying the demand. And so the people in South Africa, the fact that it is that you can, at this moment, sell rhino horn legally or trade in South Africa has no impact on the international ban. So the international ban is still in place. But they are hoping that in future that maybe they can flood the market. Because even though since 2008 or 9, when the ban was implemented, the poaching has just become more severe. So that obviously that is not a long-term solution to keep the ban on. So that's why the private rhino owners are trying everything they can to bring different solutions to the table. And one of them is by supplying the demand. So if you legalize international trade, you're going to flood the market. And they are hoping that that will bring down the price and decrease the profit for poachers. So that will make it less profitable for poachers to actually to take on the risk to poach rhinos. And then that will hopefully prevent the huge loss of um, rhino lives. And that is what this is all about. Now, Karen, can't we look at the issue of uh, the commercialization of the rhino horn? As it is that people used to live alongside wildlife and they never used to poach some of these wildlife like the rhinos, elephants for their tusks and so forth. But now, why now after, or is it the commercial aspect of it that makes them people to get into poaching? We don't understand that either. And I know there's a lot of programs implemented to help and educate the users of rhino that unfortunately, this is such a deep traditional influence that is yeah, in some of these countries like Vietnam where they use rhino horn, that they just believe that rhino horn will cure certain things and that you have to re-educate a whole nation and that's going to take time. But in the meanwhile, we need to look for solutions that can be implemented now to help and stop poachers because the use of rhino horn can be, I almost want to say it can be controlled if it is legalized because then you know where the rhino horn is going but now because the coaches are making such a huge benefit from this or they're profiting from this so much that's why they don't bother trying to just remove the horn they're killing the rhino and many times they're killing the unborn calves as well that is Karen Fender, spokesperson for Rhino Connect talking to Wandi Lekalipa it's time for economic news with Wisani Matabula Thanks, as Pumelele. Good evening. Zimbabwe Central Bank will start circulating local bank notes in October, but the country will still continue to use the Zimbabwean dollar and other foreign currencies and will not be returning to a domestic currency abandoned in 2009. Zimbabweans are worried that introducing bond notes to ease dollar shortages could open the door to rampant printing of cash, as happened in 2008 when inflation hit 500 billion percent, wiping out savings and pensions. Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe Governor John Mangunja described the local notes as vouchers meant to boost exports and generate foreign exchange and dismissed talk of a return to the local currency. 
And South Africa managed to narrow its budget deficit by 850 million US dollars in the latest financial year. That's according to figures released by the Treasury in Pretoria, where Pretoria has recorded a budget deficit of $1.9 billion in April. This compares with a $2.5 billion gap over the same period in the 2015-2016 financial year. Meanwhile, the South African Energy Department says uh, the latest increase in fuel prices due to a weaker rent against the U.S. dollar and an increase in international oil prices. The department has announced that the, the price of petrol will go up by 52 cents per litre and diesel by 76 cents per litre on Wednesday. The price of illuminating paraffin will go up by 83 cents a litre. Economist Busi Khadebe says consumers should prepare for more tough times. What does it mean? Well, when we know, we know now that the Reserve Bank is on sort of an upward cycle when it comes to interest rates. They, of course, are going to be looking at this particular number, but it's not only this number that's going to matter, the number that we're going to see come through in June. They're going to look also at a host of other things, but this does mean sort of the case for interest rate hikes, just everything else being equal, is actually strengthened by this petrol number that we've seen come through. And still on that, economists have warned that the increase in the price of petrol in South Africa is going to put distressed consumers under renewed pressure. This follows the announcement by the Department of Energy that uh, the price of petrol will increase. Economist Laura Campbell explains. The rise in petrol prices that will come into effect on um, Wednesday, it will further erode the growth in disposable income of consumers. Consumers have found their spending power being eroded by rising inflation due to the effects of the drought and in lagged response to the depreciation of the rand and also higher interest rates. South Africa's Bidvest Group has listed has listed its food services business as bid corporation on the Johannesburg Securities Exchange today with the shares opening trading at seventeen US dollars to value the company at around $5 billion. Bidcorp, which supplies uh, pubs, restaurants, and hotels in Europe, South Africa, Southern America, Asia, and is the largest primary listing on the JSC since uh, Vodacom listed in 2009. Bidvest, whose businesses also spend uh, pharmaceuticals, car showrooms, and shipping, announced in February that it planned to spin off and separately list its food business, which is its biggest division in South Africa. Mozambique's debt crisis will not impact Sasol's 1.4 billion US dollar gas project. The South African energy company says this is because costs will be covered and recouped through gas revenues. Mozambique has ad- admitted uh, to at least 1.35 billion US dollars of secret government borrowing in recent weeks plunging one of the world's poorest countries into a foreign debt crisis. Sasol has drilled its first well in its new oil and gas field in Mozambique last week. Financial indicators now the dollar trading at 15.75 against the South African rand at 11 Botswana Pura and 10.30 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. We move now to commodities where gold is at $1,203, platinum at $968 per fine ounce. The spot price of Brent crude oil is hovering at $49.10 per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now.
And thank you very much, Usani. It's time for the sports news. Here's Mosibode Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with athletics news, the RAAF has extended the suspensions of three former leading Kenyan athletics officials by six months. The East African nation, a global powerhouse in middle and long distance running, has been in the spotlight recently following allegations of widespread doping by its athletes. The three senior officials were provisionally suspended by the RAAF on the 30th of November last year, accused of subverting anti-doping processes. Up to 40 Kenyan athletes have failed doping tests in the past four years, forcing global anti-doping agency WADA to demand greater action. Three times former Boston Marathon champion Rita Jeepto is serving a two-year ban in a bid to meet WADA's compliance and avoid bidding, or rather being barred from international competitions, including this year's Rio Olympics. Kenya's parliament enacted anti-doping laws in April, and the government set up an anti Anti-doping agency of Kenya. Wada, however, rejected the laws and proposed a raft of, admit, uh, of amendments, which were rushed through Parliament last week and are awaiting presidential assent. Now to football news, Nigeria Super Eagles have arrived in Luxembourg City ahead of Tuesday's international friendly match against that country's senior national team. The delegation left Rouen where they played Mali on Friday at noon on Sunday and are now at the Alves Park Hotel, an impressive facility located on Route Egman in Luxembourg City. Channel Africa's Tony Bani has the details. There is a great spirit in campus. Players and officials look forward to a win against Luxembourg on the back of the 1-0 defeat of one of Africa's strongest teams, Mali, at the Stade Robot Deschene on Friday. The team later trained at the State Joe's Battelle, venue of Tuesday's clash with the Red Lions. However, there is quiet indignation about a report in an African football website which claimed on Saturday that the Super Eagles could not exchange jerseys after Friday's international friendly with Mali because the players do not have enough and only do wash and wear of jerseys. Team ad- administrator Diane Nebiacho wondered where such a story emanated from when the Malian players never offered to exchange jerseys with the Super Eagles at the state robot Dichon. So on football news, the Uganda national football team, the Cranes, have arrived in Zimbabwe ahead of their Africa Cup of Nations qualifier build-up game against the hosts set for Tuesday. Coach Mulitin Stretovic travelled to Harare with some of his foreign-based players missing on the team but are expected to arrive before the match. Mamanodi Sundance goalkeeper Dennis Oyango, Pirates midfielder Yasir Maguera, as well as Iceland-based midfielder Tony Mejia are the players expected to join the team from Zimbabwe. Here's coach Mitchell talking about the crucial Afghan qualifier against Zimbabwe, or rather Botswana. It is uh, very important. It is very important having in mind that we are playing away. Uh, uh, Burkina Faso is playing away. Uh, we shall see what will come. It is very important. It is We are in stage, fifth match. Of the group stage is always that one that is leading your direction. We want to do anything possible so that it leads us direction that on 3rd September here against Comoros we shall after 39 years celebrate going to Africa Cup of Nations. 
On Rugby News, Adrian Strauss will become the 57th Springbok captain after the Vodacom Bulls hooker was named to lead South Africa in the Castellaga incoming series against Ireland, which starts on the 11th of June in Cape Town. Springbok coach Alistair Kutia made the announcement on Monday afternoon in Stellenbosch, where the box are preparing for the first test. The popular Strauss hooker uh, follows in the footsteps of long-serving Springbok captain Jean de Villiers, as well as Victor Matfield, Skark Berger, as well as Fouri Dupree. And finally, netball news. There was no third time lucky for the Gauteng Jaguars, who was soundly beaten 52-43 by the Free State Crianums in the final of the Brutal Fruit Netball Premier League at the Olive Centre on Saturday night. It was the third time the two teams had met in the final. And once again, the Crianums displayed their bag, uh, rather their big match temperament. Unlike the finals back in 2014 and 2015, there was no need for extra time as the Crianums dominated throughout the match. Head coach Berta de Cox says her team was simply on song on the night. Well, we are very privileged to have a passionate team, passionate unit family, and that was just a, the totally effort of a team with 12 players that really acts as a unit and a blessing from, from, from above that the players all peak on the right time that we need them to peak. As I suppose she's at the sound, stay tuned to China Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.57 Central African time. Let's recap about top stories. UN officials failed to dissuade Kenya from closing the Dadaab refugee camp. Egypt has embarked on an initiative to show how art can be used as a tool to shape community awareness in the country. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumalele Zondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer, Sissi and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMSs, plus 27-7969579300, plus 27-7969579300. Tweets to Channel Africa 1, and we leave you with Mtande by Musa and Robert Malinga.
zochitika mu 